Hello. Uh, welcome to Union Hall. Reopen after a fire. Woo! Woo! Let's hope that doesn't happen again right now. <laughs> um, so welcome to Book Club. Thank you so much for coming. Um, <laughs> yeah. Really. Um, I'm going to stand, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do two standing. Yeah. Um, so I'm Blythe Robertson. I'm Colin Stokes. And uh, so Book Club is, as you may have seen on the website, a comedy show where we read a book every month so that you don't have to. Um, um, oh, I was going to talk about our new venue a little bit. Oh, yes. That's all right. Um, so, yeah, we were previously at the Erin. If you came to that show also, thank you so much for coming to this show. Um, and we really think that we're sort of, you know, starting a new chapter of Book Club, sort of turning the page. Um, it's a new edition. Um, our book has a new jacket. Um, it, the, the audio book has been re-recorded. The, there's a new translation. When we were writing this, Colin just went for like an hour and I was like, I'm not putting all of those in the document. Um, so yeah, so, uh, so this is a show where you don't have to read the book. It's very much like any book club you've ever been to. Um, my mom's in a book club and she's literally never read a book for it. Um, I started a book club in real life and we all pretend like we read it and we just talk about celebrity power couples. So uh, so thank you for coming to this one and just being upfront about maybe not have, having read the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have, that's cool as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, this month's book is The Handmaid's Tale, which is a dystopian novel um, written in 1985 um, and imagines the world as it currently is in 2017. <laughs> so if you're not familiar, it's like, uh, I'll just recap it very quickly. It's like uh, the United States is now a theocracy and women aren't allowed to read and they're not allowed to own property and uh, some women are forced into state-sanctioned rape in order to bear children. So, you know, light, great for comedy. Uh, Colin, have you read the book before we did the show? I did. I read it in high school, which we, I had to Google what that was called in England, even though I went there. <laughs> um, upper Secondary school, we decided secondary school. Yeah. Um, and when I was 15. Um, yes. and, but I, did, I didn't really realize that it was very much like a very American book. I mean, obviously it's a Canadian book, but a very American book. Uh, well, I, we had the choice to read it in high school. Like, we had some sections where we could all pick our own book, but I, at the time, thought that narratives about women were boring, so I didn't read it. <laughs> and now I know that only women are interesting and men are boring. Actually, there's a lot of men in the book, and without the <laughs> men, there would be no conflict, so... This book is also a TV show on Hulu. Uh, and you know it's good because everything is like light blue and gray, <laughs> <laughs> which means it's prestige television. <laughs> and uh, we, when Colin and I were researching this, we found that Margaret Atwood recently said that she really hopes that Drake is in season two and says maybe he can save somebody. <laughs> but maybe he also wants to play a horrible rapist. You know. <laughs> yeah, so Probably it remains not. to be seen. 
Um, yeah, so, and there's been a lot of talk about how, like, this book is really relevant because of our current <laughs> national nightmare, and, like, if Pence is president, he's going to make us all into handmaids, and we're living in the dystopia, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, then we thought, you know, this is a dystopia that's bad for women. What about a dystopia that's bad for men? And so we came up with some. Yeah, so here are our uh, pitches for dystopias where, like, it are, it's white men who are suffering. Um, so imagine a world in which Reddit is shut down, <laughs> forcing men to meet in secret if they want to share fun facts about lightning or ruin <laughs> the lives of women who complain about female representation in video games. A dystopia where men are no longer allowed to base every single argument on evolution. And anytime they use the phrases, it's Econ 101, or that's classic supply and demand, 50% of their hair falls out. <laughs> so you can really only do it twice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 50% it's of the remaining. Oh, yeah. okay. I, th I think 50% of my hair just fell out. <laughs> um, uh, boards of corporations get increasingly taken over by, over by women, as much as 10%. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, comedy shows are overwhelmingly run by and written by women, and the funniest joke is men getting kicked in the balls. And that I know that's the same now, but it's still <laughs> the same in dystopia. <laughs> Um, women don't have to wear makeup, and while men don't have to wear makeup either, people are constantly asking men who don't wear makeup if they're tired. <laughs> uh, men uh, have evolved to do cool basketball tricks in order to sleep with women, and they're like, it's just evolution. This is like men, it's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's evolution. Um... No one knows about Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> and when they finally do, they're like, oh, isn't that the guy who dated Fiona Apple? Um, all of the craft beer supply in North America is poisoned with a chemical that makes it taste like light beer. And <laughs> anyone who complains about it is kicked in the balls. Men are forced to read. The joke here is that men don't read. <laughs> Uh, the friend zone is a real physical location, and it's where, <laughs> it's where they put all the bad men, and it's filled with women who are talking about how Ross is the, is the villain of the show Friends. <laughs> and then there's also a thing called the enemy zone, but it's like a laser tag place. Um, then a few dystopias where things are just illegal. So, like, woodworking is illegal? <laughs> Car maintenance is illegal. Utility knives are illegal? <laughs> Barbecuing is illegal. Um, a dystopia where men have to date me specifically. <laughs> a dystopia where entourage was never made. <laughs> men are constantly pitching the idea for entourage. <laughs> but no one picks it up. <laughs> then, a bunch of women steal the idea and make a female entourage. <laughs> and it's a huge hit. And people are always talking about it. It goes off the air for a bit, and men think that it's over, but then it becomes a movie, <laughs> and it's an even bigger hit. And we know that this 
parallel between entourage uh, and uh, this. Entourage. <laughs> a female entourage is falling off because the entourage movie was apparently not that popular. So yeah, uh, a dystopia where astrology is real and it's the most important science in the world. <laughs> Uh, dystopia where women are constantly talking about their period and when men complain about it, they're like, it's locker room talk. <laughs> uh, a dystopia where women slap guys with their tampons and it's horsing around. And I didn't even write that joke. Colin wrote that. That's so fucked up. That's why it's a dystopia. It would be bad for men. <laughs> it would be bad for everyone. Um... Uh, North Korea launches a nuclear warhead that evades all protection systems and completely destroys the city of Las Vegas. And then... Uh, <laughs> that one could be true. Uh, and then the final dystopia is that that's bad for men is that Hillary Clinton is president and everything else is the same. Um, our next performer is so funny. She, is, she writes for The Onion Video, and she has a classical music column at the All, and she's in town from Chicago, and she's looking forward to enjoying her vacation, so please give her a warm welcome, Fran Hoffner! I only ever want to plug the idea of going on vacation, <laughs> which I think is really valuable. Okay, um, so I have read The Handmaid's Tale book, and uh, I know some other people have here too, but I wanted to provide some context uh, for what I was um, gonna read from it. So um, The Handmaid's Tale uh, concludes with an excerpt from the 12th Symposium on Galadian Studies, with a focus kind of overwhelmingly on the revolutionary efforts made in part to liberate the marginalized people from oppression they faced in the Republic, in the book, in the show. Um, but what I think people don't realize is that the 12th Symposium also had a lot of other presentations they went through. Um, there were 40 different panels over five days focusing on like a lot of different elements of Galadian society. And so the third day of the symposium featured a handful of film screenings of films financed by the Republic during those times, followed um, by a discussion by Professor Grant, who's the director of Galadian Film Archival Association, as well as the chair of independent film studies from University of Brighton. Um, and so I just wanted to read uh, that because, um, please don't laugh, this is uh, school. <laughs> so, um, pay attention. Uh, when the Republic of Gilead, a, the a theonomic uh, military dictatorship was established, the production of art uh, was suspended indefinitely for the first few years of theocratic ruling. Uh, approximately six years into the regime, under the guidance of the government, newspapers and documentary filmmaking were legalized. And a few years after that, mainstream filmmaking was allowed to continue under the guidance of the Ministry of Art, guaranteeing all um, big-budget films uh, accurately represented the apparent righteousness and power of the Republic. These films were, for the most part, contemporary, detailing the heroic rise of the revolutionary group Sons of Jacob, who wound up taking over, and their triumph over the democratic institution known as the United States. Um, any films resembling any kind of period aesthetic largely took place during World War II, um, the only event acknowledged by the new government as uh, really good and very interesting on a lot of different levels. Um, <laughs> 
But these types of films, however, didn't really connect to the majority of audiences beginning about a decade after that initial coup, because by that time, filmgoers uh, were the children of those who had been involved with Sons of Jacob, and they didn't experience that kind of violence firsthand. And the society they lived in now is exceedingly sterile and relatively humorless. So they struggled to connect with each other outside of kind of a typical family unit, which put the Ministry of Art in a difficult position, because these were men who had not fought for their individual rights, but who had to carry forward those values. Um, um, and in addition, just some like stats that came through at the time, 86% um, of men under the age of 25, quote, felt weird and sad um, <laughs> when they spoke to women. And, and an astonishing 95% of men under the age of 25, quote, did not want to get married. And they also, quote, wanted to help but didn't think it was really worth it when you thought about it because they really couldn't do anything and it wasn't their fault. <laughs> And additionally, 70% of men under 25 thought the idea of Handmaids was not good, but couldn't come up with anything better. <laughs> um, so with like a rapidly dissatisfied male population who quote, didn't love the government, but didn't hate it and honestly didn't know enough about it to like really have a good opinion. Um, how could art and by association film accomplish one task, which was making sons horny again? Um, and, you know, men were not blamed in any part on the sudden lack of fertility in the female population, but having to deal with um, a wife and at least one handmaiden made for a stressful, if not new and highly relatable existence that did not until this time have an exact mirror in film. So this no doubt led to a rise of what seemed to be a new genre of film, which was romantic comedies for men. Um, and these romantic comedies in the time before the military coup, kind of what we're familiar with, that were generally intended for female audiences and designed and written to make women less threatened by men. Um, male characters in romantic comedies were all often unrealistically portrayed as, quote, funny, uh, quote, generous, and, quote, employed by a nine-to-five job and not just permalancing. Um, and years prior to the rise of the Sons of Jacob, I actually saw a relative boom in heterosexual relationships with women's fear of men down to only 72%, um, <laughs> which is the lowest it had been in decades, for what it's worth. Um, and in turn, so these male-driven romantic comedies under the Republic had to do a similar thing, but with women. Uh, at the so time, men saw women as, quote, cold, and, quote, confused, and, quote, hurt, and, quote, on edge, and, quote, betrayed, and, quote, very angry, and, quote, tired. Um, you know, their forefathers had consented to these, like, strange sexual politics of the Republic out of desperation and urgency, but these men uh, had no stakes uh, in continuing that kind of action. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like animals at the zoo where obviously you'd like them uh, to fall in love with each other naturally, but you knew that they just had to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> women uh, at the time had also grown increasingly alien to men. Um, and what they wanted from their wives and handmaidens specifically was to appear, quote, more sympathetic, quote, kind, and quote, responsive, but not talkative. <laughs> um, so the first and most notable film within this category was released in 2067, and it was a 95-minute com comedy film entitled Her and Her and Also Mostly Me. <laughs> Um, which depicted a young man and his wife um, who are given a handmaid that just so happens to have been his prom date um, <laughs> several years earlier, um, only to watch as his wife and his handmaid become close good friends. Uh, this comedy of errors showcased how much of the trappings men dealt with during that time, including saying, no, I was actually talking to her when speaking with more than one woman in a room, as well as how, quote, nuts, phrasing taken from the film poster, it is to be having sex with one woman while pretending to have sex with another. 
Um, it was a box office hit, earning $80 million in its opening weekend, and kicked off a wave of similar titles, such as All of Us Here in One Room, and <laughs> This Is Now, and Her, but not the 2013 movie. Um, and what was crazy is these films managed to do the unthinkable, which has made it seem as if men and women could get along. Um, and on top of that, that situations between them could be both funny and spirited and maybe eventually lead to sex. Men saw, men, you know, finally saw versions of themselves um, on screen where they were likable and had cool jobs, like wrote for a magazine or architect or owner of an independent small restaurant that specialized in novelty treats. And, you know, women had roles like wife and not yet wife or handmaid. Um, and there were those at the time, you know, who published pieces questioning whether or not art was able to create long-term change, but statistics say otherwise. Din disinterest in marriage dropped down to 66%, which in the first five years is, was very good. And in addition, men grew increasingly less afraid of handmaids, which should be mentioned, um, handmaids were silent in all films produced during this time, but were usually kind of represented uh, sort of like what we know as mimes. <laughs> so capable of big emotion and physical humor, but no dialogue. So, you know, the growth and popularity of the films funded by the Republics did lead to a variation of genres, like, outside of that, with sort of newer conflicts ranging anywhere from, you know, quote, my wife slash my handmaid-esque comedies to, quote, my dad, my son, family dramedies that bridged paths between these two generations of men through classic misunderstandings and sometimes road trips. Um, and also sort of a rise in niche genres, as my friend's handmaid is hotter than mine, and also handmaids, but what if during World War II? Um, and you know, ultimately the reflection of self and film did give strength and perseverance to men at this time, which was what was most important and boosted the power of the Republic by convincing those that romantic comedies uh, were good. So thank you so much. Thank you, Fran. That was wonderful and very illuminating. I didn't know so much about uh, film and uh, Gilead. <laughs> I would like to watch many of those, actually, I think. <clears throat> um, so, I'm, I'm Colin Stokes, if you've not met me before in person. Nice, nice to see you guys. <laughs> um, hmm, maybe, no, yes. Um, <clears throat> so, um, I'm a big reader. I probably don't even have to tell you that, though. Um, <laughs> just looking at me, you're probably thinking, that guy reads. <laughs> and just like my other favorite hobby, you would be right. Right, like writing. It's a play on words. Right means correct, but it also means to write, like writing. Not like writing something that's fallen over, but like writing a poem. Anyway, besides being a skilled wordsmith, I'm a total bookhead. Yes, I coined that term myself and have spent more than $8,000 on the domain name and on merchandise related to it. 
If you want any of it, it's at the door. I always say, if it's got words, I'll read it. As long as it's a book and not a magazine or a pamphlet or a road sign or anything that has words that is not a book. My only hang-up about reading books is that I don't like doing it on Kindles or any other e-reader. I just want hard copy physical books. I know that us millennials are meant to be all about screens, but I think I'm kind of old school. So that's why I compiled a list to share with you today of reasons why I think books are better than Kindles. Kindles can break when they get sand in them, and I like reading on the beach. <laughs> books, on the other hand, are great for reading on the beach. They even age nicely in the sun. <laughs> books are much more visually appealing to burn if you want to make a symbolic protest. <laughs> Kindles give off toxic gases when you burn them. <laughs> Books allow you to show everyone on the subway what you're reading. Or to, uh, oh yes, yes, they'll, they'll let you show, yeah. To let people on the subway know what you're reading on a Kindle, you have to go around the car and individually show them your screen. <laughs> when you put books on shelves, they can fill up a room. They're like free decor. When you put Kindles on shelves, people say, why do you have so many Kindles? <laughs> you know that you can just download loads of books onto one Kindle, right? and I thought you liked books and didn't like Kindles, you always talk about that. <laughs> Amazon is an evil company, and they make Kindles. You can buy hard copy books so easily, they have everything at Amazon. <laughs> this one is pretty important for me. Um, the physical experience of a Kindle just isn't satisfying. I love the feeling of paper on my genitals. <laughs> I guess that resonates with a few of you. I'm glad. If you have a library card, you can get books out of the library for free. There might be some similar program for ebooks, but I haven't looked into it. <laughs> I like nothing more than cracking open a new book and burying myself in it. And just to be clear, I mean that sexually. <laughs> Kindles get updated all the time, and frankly, it's hard to keep up. Books can have new editions, but you don't but you, need to have, uh, you don't need to have Wi-Fi to download new software. I like to go into bookstores and see how many books I can fuck without anyone noticing. 
When you're finished with them, you can give books to your friends and family. <laughs> Kindles can be given to your friends and family, but it's much more expensive than giving a book that you just finished. If you want to ball up paper and put it in your mouth while you pleasure yourself, <laughs> books are the number one option. I tried this once with a Kindle and my mouth was severely injured. Books have a particular smell that I love. Kindles smell like machines. I have a suit made of paper from books that I wear and lie in in bed. I don't do anything, but the feel of the paper alone is enough to bring me into ecstasy. I roll around in the paper and feel it fold under my body, the words smushing into my skin, sometimes getting small paper cuts in my flesh, but always enjoying, always thirsting for more, more, more paper, more of that paper feel. Kindles cannot do that. Thank you so much. And now, brings me great pleasure, even more than paper, um, to welcome Harris Mayerson, who is a, a heartbroken man, a lovely guy, yeah. How's everyone doing? Hey. Oh boy. So I, uh, let's be real. I read The Handmaid's Tale um, and it got me thinking. It got me thinking a lot. I was just like, oh, like, am I a misogynist? Like, I just, I, sincerely, I was reading, I was like, am I a misogynist? I don't know. I look back at my life, my relationship with women, and I think they're all positive, to be honest with you guys. Um, but I read, I know, it's laughable. <laughs> But I read it and I was just like, I don't know, am I misogynist? And I was like, who would know if I was or wasn't? So my idea uh, for the show was that I would interview my ex-girlfriend. I would have a very candid conversation with my ex-girlfriend. So I did that. Um, and I'd like to show you part of it real quick. It's so... Here it is. Here's a clip from the 40-minute conversation I had with my ex-girlfriend. Does anyone know what's wrong with this clip? No sound is correct. I did have a 40 minute conversation with my girlfriend to not be able to show it to people now, <laughs> which is horrifying. <laughs> like, I mean, you can see the range of emotions happening here. It's a lot of just, you know, yeah, that's not a good, that sign shows you what the conversation was like. Um, and that sucked <laughs> and I've kind of panicked. Because that was literally my bit for this show. <laughs> and she lives in San Francisco, and it, it was tough, and I was like, oh, fuck. What am I going to do? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And it's, it was brutal. But after, I had a long conversation. I called her, and it was embarrassing. I was like, hey, like, I, I fucked up. Oh, this is when I asked her how much I weigh. Uh, <laughs> wait, can anyone guess? Read her lips. Ready? One seventy-five. Fuck her. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> so I asked her. But so we had that conversation, and then eventually I, I talked to her enough, and um, I can I swear to God I convinced her to come out to New York tonight so we could I I transcribed it. Uh, what pretty much the highlights of the interview, and I asked her if she wouldn't mind coming out to New York. Um, so my ex-girlfriend is here, and I'd love her to come up, please, if you wouldn't mind. You're wearing overall, please, you, I'm pointing at you. Yeah, my ex-girlfriend, Remy, everyone give it a My ex-girlfriend, Remy, everybody. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Remy, it's so good to see you. Um... She has gotten a haircut and a lot of changes since the video. So, real quick. To make you feel more comfortable, I uh, brought you just what your old hair looks like. You can just put on what your old hair looks like. And so people recognize you. Um, a similar top to the one you're wearing in the video. Great. Oh, my sweet Remy. Um, Remy, thank you so much for coming to read you the interview. It's so sweet of you. Um, to make you comfortable, I brought your favorite wine. Oh, thank you. And our, our favorite treat of old, uh, sardines and hot sauce. If you want to, I'll feed you one if you want, just as, I know. Just like old time. My sweet baby girl, nothing changes. Um, I'll pour you some wine real quick. So... I know you're horrible stage fright, and I know you hate doing things like this. Mmm, taste the hot sauce. <laughs> uh, and I thought maybe we could, I, so I wrote up what you said during our transcript. So we could uh, just kind of recreate what we were talking about earlier, remember? Mm -hmm. It was great. I really appreciate it. Exactly. So, so there, yeah, if you wouldn't mind, so just, and you know. I just want to make sure you got it right. Of course, yeah, I mean. You remember the reason I love you, because you never try to be funny. And if you could, <laughs> you know, you were so loyal and stuck to the script. And I, I, um, so sincerely, these are uh, from our earlier conversation. And if you couldn't mind, we're going to recreate the interview. Is that okay? Great. Um, so Remy, uh, thank you. Uh, if you could briefly summarize our relationship with each other, starting from when we weren't dating up to now. Okay. Uh, you want to speak into the microphone? I, she she doesn't know stages. She's she's a PR lady. Hey. Ah, <laughs> uh, the tension's there. So if you could summarize our relationship. So we met freshman year of college. After about a year of knowing each other, we started well. I I admitted we were dating. You were incredibly persistent, I, I guess not in a creepy way, but when I send mis, mis, mixed messages, you hung around. So we dated for about three years before breaking up. We should have stayed broken up, but we got back together for six months and broke up in July 2014. Now we're friends. It took a while, but we're, I'd say we're friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so now that everyone knows where me, how me and Remy kind of started, uh, uh, to start, how would you describe my overall views towards and uh, the manner with which I treat women? Well, I don't, I've always said you were more of a fem feminist than I am, but that's because you've always been incredibly respectful towards women. I think that's because your mom was such a strong role model and an amazing person. Yeah, you, you and Jamie always did get along, and I have a lot of respect for that. Uh, yeah. Um, so, but more specifically, how did I treat you throughout our relationship? Great. I mean, not at the end, but you know that. Uh, so what what I do at the end of our relationship, if you don't mind recounting it for these people? 
Well, you treated me as a therapist more than a girlfriend. When you were anxious, you just kind of shut everyone out and took your frustrations out on me, which is taxing. I couldn't be there for you. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. Uh, which brings... Yeah, that was rough. Um, which brings my next question. When you see me on TV, which I have been a handful of times now, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? Does it make you wish we were still dating? Are you jealous? Like, what are... Jealous at all. I showed my mom the first time you were on Colbert. What? Not yeah, I mean, it was on Colbert. It was fine. It was whatever. <laughs> I don't want to be on TV. I'm not about that. Yeah, but did you tell your current boyfriend about me being on TV? No, he doesn't care about TV. He doesn't care about TV. No. All right, that's fair. Um, speaking of which, you're currently dating someone I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, have you told your boyfriend about our relationship? Is he like okay that we're friends? I mean, he knows we, we dated for, like, all of college. He knows we're friends. Actually, he thinks it's kind of weird that we're friends. He knows you do comedy and you do your little skits, like this one. But, yeah, believe it or it's not, harsh. we don't spend most of our time talking about you. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> um, I, guess, I guess with that in mind, like, so what do, what do you think the characteristics that define, like, the male identity are? Like, do, do I fit in your traditional idea of what constitutes a man? Like, why or why not? a really weird question. Uh, I don't know, I guess by standards, how my dad raised Connor and I. Your you're, brother Connor, right? Yeah. All right, cool. Glad you remember. These people don't know who Connor is, so. No, but I'm, I'm glad you remembered that was a test. Yeah. Uh, you're not much of a man. You're pretty directionally impaired. You can't build much. You're pretty weak, too. But you're, in terms of societal expectations of men caring and driven and focused and you know what you want. I think our society really expects that for men. So, kind of? You're kind of a man? Okay. <laughs> My ex-girlfriend, everyone. Oof. <laughs> it's a, uh, <laughs> Did I ever make you feel less than because of your gender? No, never. All right, cool. Great. Um, which brings my next question. How fast do you think I can run a mile? Honestly? I'd be shocked if you could break a 10-minute mile. <laughs> you don't work out, do you? You didn't before. Um, uh, I equinox. It's very expensive in New York, you know, and maybe in San Fran with your tech bullshit. But I mean, it's. Uh, uh, what do you think is my worst trait? What would you say is my worst trait? It's hard to pick one. <laughs> you can be completely self-absorbed, a complete narcissist, a major depressive. Like, when you're worried about something for your career or in a funk, you're pretty disrespectful to everyone, regardless of gender. You just only care about yourself. But maybe that's what will make you successful. We just live such different lives. Yeah. Yeah. Comedy is part of the reason we broke up, and I understand that that's tough, but it's... <laughs> it's... I just... I really... You know I care about my career, but... I don't know. I guess... Do you think as a couple, we brought out the best or the worst in each other? For most of it, we brought out the best. Towards the end the absolute worst. We were miserable at the end of our relationship. You literally read my diary. I think that's pretty telling. You're saying that very out of context because it was part of a bit. I read it. Yes, I did read the diary, but I it mean, was... you still read my diary. I mean, read, read. I don't still read it. I don't have to... It was a bit. It was not... It was a violation of trust. I acknowledge that. I'm not proud of that. It was... Um, yeah, that was fucked up. That's fucked up to bring that in front yeah. of a bunch of people. But... You asked my opinion. I know. Do, do you think I'll ever be happy in a relationship? I really hope so. 
I know you told me you don't think you ever will be, but I don't think that's true. I think that. Let's finish that sentence. Weird. Uh, what's up? No. Yeah. That's an incomplete thought. Yeah. <laughs> how much do you? Uh, how much do you think I weigh? Oh, that's so nice of you. Yeah, a, a little bit under, but I mean, it's, um, we're, we're coming towards the end of here, but I mean, so you specifically asked me not to ask any questions about our sex life when I asked you to do this. Uh, is it because I was bad at sex? I have no comment on that. Okay. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, so I have one last question. You guys, give it up, Remy, for doing this. And so let me fill up your glass with her. So one last question. Uh, uh, what's your last happy memory of us as a couple? Probably the wedding, the Morrison wedding in Fort Lauderdale with your family and everyone. <laughs> I remember that wedding. It was a nice wedding. The basis is need to know of course, it was so much fun. And when our song played, you remember that? When our song played, I think I hear it. I can't, I can't dance, I can't dance with you. I can't, I can't. It's where I have a girlfriend now. It's, I know it's weird, but I, I don't think we can dance. I love, I know this is our song, but. Wait, I mean, no, I just don't. Oh, whoa! Fuck you. I. Well, that's my ex. <laughs> oh. oh. My ex-girlfriend is so bad with the final cue of a beat, and it just like it's that's what you get. Um, give it up for Remy, everyone. Uh, give it up for your hosts. Thank you so. I'm Harris Marison. Thank you. Thank you, Harris. Thank you, Remy. God, where are you? <laughs> um, wow. Uh, oh fuck. <laughs> Harris, can you pull my thing up? Yeah. Um, so I was really inspired by the feminism of Handmaid's Tale, even though Margaret Atwood uh, said that Handmaid's Tale isn't a feminist book, uh, which is a true thing that she said. But I thought I would give you guys some feminist tips for a situation that I learned about recently. This is a true situation uh, for surviving plane crashes. <laughs> so... I recently read a book, uh, Stiff by Mary Roach. It's about corpses. I highly recommend it. Uh, but in a footnote, she said that uh, in a study in 1970 of like a couple plane crashes that involved evacuations, they found that the number one uh, way to survive a plane crash is to be a man because men would <laughs> push everyone else out of the way. <laughs> And I was like, that's fucked up. Women should also push people out of the way to survive plane crashes. <laughs> so you women, you deserve to make it off this plane, okay? <laughs> and if you don't, you are the one to blame. So here are some tips, some things you might face. All right, so number one, feminism is about making sure that good things happen to you, okay? 
you might have heard that it's about like helping all women, helping anyone who is oppressed of you know any gender. That's not true. It's about like figuring out how to make feminism work for you so you can have more money and more perks. Uh, <laughs> So, like, Taylor Swift, a great example, a woman who, like, found out how to make feminism make her a lot of money and then not help anyone else. <laughs> great job, Taylor. Okay. <laughs> the ambition gap. So, like, men, like, they set high goals. And maybe your problem is that you just, like, never aspired to make it out of a plane alive. <laughs> Maybe you're like, I don't want to live because life is a constant pain. Like, every single day I'm harassed on the basis of my gender. Like, there are two senile, like, men in the world who are trying to blow up the planet anyway, so who cares if I live? Okay, like, men aren't going to save you. You need to save yourself from this plane crash. You need to chase your goals. So, okay, Cheryl Sandberg says sit at the table, right? Well, you need to be sitting in an exit row. <laughs> You don't want to be sitting in the middle because you're like, oh, well, like, men need leg space. No, fuck that. Maybe you feel like, oh, maybe I'm not qualified to be in an exit row. Like, like maybe you have imposter syndrome. Like, do I know how to open a door? <laughs> uh, I don't know. And, like, we all know that men are hired on their potential. Like, oh, he seems like he could open a door. And women are hired on their past performance. So it's like, well... I don't know, tell me, have you opened a door? Like, provide proof. So you know what, women? Fake it till you make it. Sit in that row. If it turns out that you don't know how to open a door and everyone dies because of it, like, you deserve the chance to see. All right, likability. Ugh, we've all been there. If a woman punches a ton of people while trying to get out of a crashing plane, she's a bitch, right? But if a man does it, he's authoritative and hot, and like, I wanna marry him. <laughs> okay, for women, success and likability are inversely correlated, and we have seen that with Hillary Clinton. When she was a woman, you know, when she was Secretary of State serving a man, everyone loved her, right? But then one time she punches Dennis Kucinich on a plane and she loses the election. <laughs> and I think that's fucked up. All right, so find a mentor. This is really important if you want to succeed in surviving a plane crash. Find someone who is going to use their structural privilege to give you a leg up because you look like them. <laughs> and male allies are better because men are better than women. <laughs> so follow behind a man who's punching people. <laughs> because, okay, remember, feminism is all about taking the violent structures that men have set up and using them for your gain. It's not about like remaking the world in a female mold that's like gentle and great and tender to everyone. It's mm, just be very violent. It's like the, like the movie Wonder Woman. Okay. Oh, just a quick break. I want to say this just to make it incredibly clear. I love capitalism. Moving on. <laughs> okay. Um. So this is huge for women, right? Like you have to manage your role as a mom because maybe for likability reasons you had a kid. And then, you, then the plane is crashing and you feel like, well, if I don't take care of this kid, who's going to take care of it, right? No, don't feel like that. Don't let men make you feel like that. Like, I have an equal partnership with where, like, my husband and I both don't take care of our kids because we pay someone to do it, right? 
And maybe you're like, oh, shouldn't we like have a universal system that takes care of kids with like taxpayer money so that like no one has to choose between like family and career? No, because paying taxes stresses me out. <laughs> you know, like I have like, I make $10 million a year and I don't want to pay $4 million in taxes. All right, work with other women. Ladies, we have to stick together, right? This means don't criticize me just because I won't help other women. <laughs> Ugh. Sisterhood. Okay, so if you follow these steps, ladies, you could be the one woman out of 15 people who survives a plane crash. And you know what? Remember, the only thing that's holding you back is you. I don't want to hear you whining and saying like, oh, maybe the entire system is racist and sexist and classist and like, why is the plane crashing in the first place? Maybe we should remake society in a way that benefits everybody. Uh, no. <laughs> Listen. If you personally survive the plane crash, it's good for all women. And maybe one day you'll inspire little girls to punch a bunch of people to get out of a plane. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Thanks. All right, so I hope that helps you. Uh, so we have one final performer. She is so funny. She's also in town on vacation from Canada. She writes for Baroness Von Sketch Show, which is on IFC on Wednesdays, I believe. And she wrote the book, I Can't Believe It's Not Better. Uh, please give it up for Monica Heisey. Hi, guys. Okay, so I'd like to first uh, clarify that rumor. I'm actually not on vacation. I'm taking meetings. So <laughs> maybe you've heard of them. Um, it's a really exciting thing to do. You just have coffee with people who you will call again in one year. Um, so I was really excited when they asked me to do this show because I'm from Canada, where Margaret Atwood is from, where everyone in The Handmaid's Tale is trying to escape to. Um, and uh, a lot of people think that like the national pastime of Canada is like hockey or like eating and making poutine or something, but actually it is writing politically charged sexual dystopian fiction. Um, and I've done some of that as well. I mean, we all have. Um, so I thought I would just share with you a few of, of mine, basically. Um, the first one is, you know, like obviously there's a lot of politics happening in America right now, but we have them in Canada too. So this one's a Canadian, sort of sexual Canadian political dystopia. Um, so, you know, Margaret Atwood's not the only one in this game. Okay. <clears throat> um, it's a little bit, like, heavy, and, like, it is, like I said, very political, so, like, buckle up for that. Okay. It was the year 2069, and fucking was illegal. Across the now-ruined city of Toronto, rogue bands of perverts conducted secret meetings in the night. At least, that's what Tess had heard. She was 22 and very into computer hacking and had tattoos and piercings and stuff. It was pretty intense. <laughs> Rumor had it the perverts met in the burned-out remains of old condos by the waterfront. They did things with old fitness equipment, she'd been told. Terrible things. She knew it was dangerous. The mayor was always hologramming into people's homes to make sure no one was doing it. But she couldn't help herself next to dusting off abandoned computers and rigging them up to do unexpected hacking stuff. The only thing she wanted to do was fuck, illegally. Tonight, Tess decided she was going to. 
She pulled on a hoodie and put some eyeliner on top of her eyeliner before lining her eyes. <laughs> then she jumped on the back of a streetcar, past the police robots and the regular robots, and down to the waterfront. It had started to rain. Tess was relieved. Being wet when she got there seemed like a good head start. Her hair stuck to her face, the water dripping down onto some crazy leather shit she was wearing. She looked up at the blood-red moon and thought about when all this had started in 2015. She cursed. We should never have let the hot man be prime minister. So that's the political part of that. Um, so then the next one... Um, I just need to do a quick poll of the room so this doesn't mess up with the flow of this next piece. Um, the like hip beauty Instagram brand, Glossier. Do we all agree it's Glossier or are there some glossier people in the room? Glossier. Glossier? Okay, that's what I thought, but you have to check. Um, after I was burned so hard by LaCroix, I've never recovered. That's a nightmare. Um, it's its own whole thing, so okay. This one is set in a world um, that's actually in a lot of ways scarier than The Handmaid's Tale. So women's rights are severely curtailed. They're really only um, valued for their uh, potential as uh, bringers of new life into the world. They're all, um, their rights have been taken away from them. Men are in charge. Uh, there's a theocracy in place, but also exogene still exists. Um, so this piece is called, It Happened to Me, I signed off on the whole handmaid's thing on behalf of all women. So. So, first of all, guys, my bad. For sure, I'm a big enough person to admit when I've messed up and signing away women's status as people while conscripting us into a forced breeding situation from which the only escape is death via blood poisoning in ruined faraway lands was really not cool. Gilead is definitely very intense. But as my accountant's tattoo says, life is like a photograph. We develop from the negatives. So, fine. Mea kappa. But also, hear me out. For starters, and this is important, in all the drawings they showed me, the hats looked a lot smaller. Also, they really downplayed the part about the ritualized rape. Obviously, if I had known I'd have to wear this dumb lampshade on my head every day, I would have had some strong words for those guys on behalf of all of us. And I truly did fight for us to be the ones who got to wear blue, which I know is a more universally flattering color for a lot of people. <laughs> I really was in your corner, guys. I tried. Ultimately, however, I lost that battle, as you all lost the right to leave your homes unsupervised. <laughs> Everybody makes mistakes. And let's be honest, it's not like modern feminism was perfect. I think we can all agree there were definitely a lot of problems, including but not limited to toxic call-out culture, pitting women against each other online, and the backs always falling off of those fun enamel pins. <laughs> so yes, this system of near constant surveillance and forced birth is not ideal. But you really can't blame me for wanting to try something different. If anything, you should have blamed me for ask not asking enough questions about the monthly forced births. And okay, if we have to talk about that part, let me just say, hand on heart, basically I didn't think that much about it. I got admittedly kind of overly focused on the hat, which, as I said, looked way cooler and kind of sleek and futuristic in the drawings like those visors they wear in Japan. 
People over there have such amazing skin, and it's because they don't let their faces be exposed to the sun. Which is all to say that if I hadn't been waiting so long for Glossier to release their sunscreen, maybe I wouldn't have gone for this whole thing in the first place. So I think we can all agree that a lot of blame for this situation rests on the shoulders of high-end independent beauty brands. Anyway, it's not like I feel great about it, but when we were still allowed to view the printed word, I read this really amazing article about how women should stop saying sorry so much. And it really impacted me. So I'll just leave you with this. Life is hard enough as it is without people being so passive aggressive to me at the supermarket. Just last week, my gynecologist offered to impregnate me, thinking he was doing me a kindness because my life is in danger if I don't breathe soon. And then he found a ball of cat hair in my vagina. <laughs> So that's that one. Exo Jane, everybody. And then I have one more. Um, just to end the night on like a lighter note, because it is a comedy show about a book that's mostly about rape. Um, so those were some sexual dystopias, and I thought, like, what might my sexual utopia be like? Um, just like, what would be the best situation I can imagine while being horny? And um, this is it. So. <clears throat> Um, Monica was sitting in the corner of the bar, engaged in her favorite Friday night activity, slamming martinis and watching the Polar Express on an iPad mini. <laughs> her long red hair shone under the lights, and she fit easily into the jeans she bought three years ago. She just put them on that morning, and doing them up had been normal. No issues to report. They just fit, and that's all. The Polar Express had begun. Monica was excited to learn about friendship, bravery, and the spirit of Christmas, and to see Tom Hanks transform into hero boy, father, conductor, Scrooge, Santa Claus, and especially hobo. She was really getting into it, settling her robust yet proportional butt and thighs into the booth and mouthing the words along with the dialogue. The thing about trains, it doesn't matter where they're going, she said to herself. Suddenly, a voice joined hers. What matters is deciding to get on. Monica paused the movie. Her back would have straightened if her posture wasn't already so good. <laughs> Turning, she looked up into a pair of gently mischievous eyes, a strong Roman nose, and lips that were realistically a little small but seemed like they'd get the job done, kissing-wise. She blinked. Standing over her in this airport moxies was beloved actor and typewriter collector Tom Hanks. <laughs> Monica knew she had to say something smart and perfect. She cleared her throat. <clears> throat> Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Tom Hanks smiled. Apollo 13, he said. Clever. Mind if I join you? Monica slid over in the booth to make room for Tom Hanks. He took off his suit jacket and got in beside her. Under the table, their thighs touched. I'm Monica, she said. I'm Tom Hanks, said Tom Hanks. But can I be real with you? For just one night, I want to be a normal guy. Not the Oscar winner who wrote, directed, and starred in That Thing You Do. Not the proud father and occasional fiction writer who made an unexpected cameo in a Carly Rae Jepsen video. Not the genre-defying maverick who invented being smug but in a hot way and you've got mail. Just me. Just Hanks. Monica gasped. Not because what Tom Hanks had been saying was so deep, but because he had started fingering her basically as soon as he mentioned that thing you do. 
Thank you so much. Thank you, Monica. Thank you. And thank all of you guys for coming. Thank uh, you. Yeah, that's our show. Thank you. Book Club, a comedy show, recorded at Union Hall by Good Herbert. Live sound and recording by Chris Medrano. Guests were Fran Hoffner, Monica Heise, Harris Meyerson, and your hosts were Blythe Robertson and Colin Stokes. <laughs>